0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a delight to have you with us today. Now, on this programme, as you probably know, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. We read it, we talk about it, then we ask the poet to read one of her own poems that's been published in the magazine, and I'm thrilled to say that with me today is Eileen Miles, who, among many distinctions, has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in nonfiction. And she's the author of 19 books of poetry. Welcome, Eileen Miles. Hi, Paul. So the poem that we're looking at today, the poem that you've chosen, is White Boat, Blue Boat by James Schuyler. Presumably, James Schuyler was someone you knew.
1: He was a good friend. I worked for him for a period of time, and after that, we just became close. And had been a hero before any of that. So,
0: now, when you say you worked for him, were you uh, an assistant? Or mm-hmm.
1: yeah, he lived in the Chelsea Hotel, and he had just moved in there. And his um, army of friends hired me to. You know, do everything for him in anything, and anything I did.
0: Now, presumably, that was the heyday of the Chelsea Hotel. I'm I, I'm I'm sure that the Chelsea Hotel is still in a scintillating place, but it perhaps it was perhaps more scintillating.
1: The heyday was long, but I think this is at the the far end of '79, so it was still pretty cool. Um, there was still lots of bands. It wasn't it was post Sid and Nancy, but in in. But there were still plenty of weird, cool people there.
0: You know, I'm sure uh, listeners would love to know a little more about uh, what the poetry scene in New York uh, was like. Um, Obviously, it's not so long ago, but seems like a different era.
1: Well, I think a lot, lots of us lived in the same neighborhood, which was the East Village. I mean, I, I very deliberately, I mean, I moved to New York a few years before, but moved to the East Village, both for the rents and for the... The company and what that largely was at that time was poets and people in bands, and it was just starting to be a day of you know all night Ukrainian restaurants and they just you know the CBGBs was like very live and very new and and you know word of mouth and so there was and and everybody had a lot of time because we lived so cheaply and and it was it was really amazing and we weren't on the internet. We weren't on the. We were present, and there were so many bookstores, and poets were making a living selling their books. People, people were finding books, and and you know, people often didn't have phones. You would just buzz the buzzer. Do you think
0: of uh, the world of poets as being a companionable one, or one in which people are acting perhaps as as uh, solo agents?
1: Oh well, I mean both, of course. I mean I think we're all kind of a bunch of loners, mm-hmm. but a, lo- a bunch of loners who need each other very much. I mean the the idea of a, um, a school of poets just has to do with the fact that that people need to kind of cluster in a way to you know because I, when I came to New York, everybody told me what I should read and what I shouldn't read, and mostly they were men, and so I had to kind of ramble around and take a little something from here and a little something from there, and but when I Gravitated towards a group whose poetry made so much sense to me and had something to do with what I wanted to do. It was an excite I felt like I had found a home.
0: Now, would you align yourself with with the New York School?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was that was the aesthetic, of one of many, but maybe the reigning aesthetic of St. Mark's Church, where I, you know, which really stood in as graduate school for me. I mean, they had free workshops that were funded by the NEA, and that. At that time, you just walk in on Friday night with your beer and sit down, and Alice Notley or Ted going to be there, and, and the other, you know, ten or twelve young people in the East Village that wanted to be in the room with them.
0: So now, James Schuyler or Jim Schuyler, as he would have been known, was a a prominent member of the New York School. What would you say in his work typifies that school? If if I were to be kind of schoolmasterly
1: here. Uh, vernacular. Skylar's work is so vernacular. And, and it's very funny because it's very simple language and it's much less, um, I don't know, kind of, I guess, abstract than Ashbury's in a certain way. Though Ashberry's isn't really when you look close, but the overall feel. But Skylar's, you you know where you are. And, and so they look like very simple, sometimes even kind of childlike poems. But there'll always be a whoosh of of. Common talk in a way like this a, a poem of his that I love is called Six Something, you know, and it's just that blur of six what six o'clock six fifteen six, you know June what you know it's just, and we do talk that way. And Skyler was very quick to pick up. I mean, he called his own um, poetry point and snap, you know, and I think it is that on every level, not just visual, but a kind of organizing way of. of talking slang.
0: So these poets, um, Frank O'Hara, I think of very much in this vein also, of course, uh, were were taking Wordsworth's uh, notion of poetry uh, having to do with the language of the common man, the Mm -hmm. language of everyday speech. They were taking that to the nth degree, really.
1: Sure. But while being very educated, very middle-class, upper-middle. These are we're talking about, I mean, not Schuyler, but, you know, Ashby, and Harrow, guys who went to Harvard, you know, people who went to prep school. I mean, we're, we're not, you know, but in love with the street, you know, rather than necessarily being men of the street, you right. know, having the ear of the street, you know. But Stein, too, I think that was the belief that the language, as we know, changes there.
0: You know, I was reading a little bit about... Um James Schuyler, in, in anticipation of our conversation, just reminding myself, and I came across a really what I think is an interesting quote from Barbara Guest, who of course was one of the other uh, main women involved with the New York School. Mm-hmm. And she refers to him, I see here, as an intimist. Mm-hmm. An intimist. She says, for me, Jimmy is the of office, mm-hmm. presumably the French painter who specialised in... Uh, interiors. He withholds his secret, the secret thing, until the moment appears to reveal it. We wait and wait for the name of a flower while we praise the careful cultivation. We wait for someone to speak, and it is Jimmy in an aside.
1: Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Well, I think the word intimist is absolutely perfect for him. It's close, and it's touchable, and it, it, it has just a quality of sweetness. That, that I think we do associate with intimacy, you know, dangerous sweetness, even.
0: Right. Let's uh, can we hear the, uh, you read this poem, by Any Chance? It's White Boat, Blue Boat, which uh, appeared in the November 27th, 1989 mm-hmm. issue of the magazine. So here's Eileen Miles reading White Boat, Blue Boat by James Schuyler.
1: White boat, blue boat. Two boats parked and posing in the sun-struck winter landscape. Rough grass, bare with green washes, against self-colored bark, live twigs, end and red buds. You can't see it, the red, and when you do, you can't not see it, against a scaling trunk that, higher than three men on each other's shoulders, becomes more trunks beyond marsh grass and reeds scratched swiftly in a woman goes by her dog too in short lopes a mutt the day can't get brighter, clearer but it brightens, brightens so much and so much more under infinite cloudlessness and icy spaces and endless mystery it
0: really is as if one is uh, having a painting described to one that's really its method I suppose, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. And an animated one too, and a, or a painting that suddenly became a film because it always it always does one thing and then it just starts opening from there, you know. And then so there's a progression all the time that it is almost is the intimacy. Is, that's the shock effect that you see something beautiful, and your own awe should hold a still, but in fact, it's alive.
0: Well, part of the effect, of course, is that it's as if we're discovering uh, in real time. What is what, mm-hmm. it, what? What the poet, what the speaker of the poem is discovering, mm-hmm. just a little bit here, a little bit there, and it sort of all adds up. Wonderful technique. I mean, that description, for example, of the scaling trunk that higher than three men on each. Others' shoulders Uh becomes more trunks. (laughs) And the relationship between the trunk of the human body and the trunk of the the tree, you know, which could easily be a bit, uh, let's say,
1: overstated, Mm -hmm. is really done quite delicately. Right, right. And it winds up being even a little bit sexy. You don't have to think about it too much, but it's there too, in the, the engagement with a man's body, with a man's trunk.
0: I love this use of the word scaling. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an indicator yet again just of how – Terrifically precise, Schuyler is scaling, both in the sense of the scale, I suppose, of the of the tree, in the sense of the the rough surface of the tree, the scale in the fish scale sense, and then the scale in the ladder sense.
1: And he brings the men in with that verb before they're even there, because a the scaling trunk is about the climbing, you know, and the going up, and and you know the tree ain't doing that. The human body is, or the human gaze is. So it's sort of in advance of the human presence, it's there.
0: And in fact, it also goes in the direction of scale and the notion of perspective, you know, the size of one thing in relation to another, the kind mm-hmm. of idea that uh, Elizabeth Bishop was terrifically interested in. Um, I mean, just uh, masterful.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's it's also it's just a statement of the fact that a, a view is always a thing of great depth, you know, that it's not the foreground or the background, it's the mini grounds. You know, and that's what he reveals to us in his kind of like moving commodity. Many of
0: these New York school poets were deeply, deeply engaged in the visual arts. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe too, in a profound sense, all poets are mm-hmm. um, image makers.
1: And I think, for one thing, because it relieves you of the culture of us i e poetry and the culture of another, and you so you get to ha you get to have conversations about their moves and think about things that we do in in sort of an abstract way you know you replace language with stuff and then you watch how stuff moves and and then we translate back um so i think there's a there's kind of a an other for us in the art world
0: you know i've always been a bit confused, I think, as to, you know, what exactly were the roots of this this particular school? We often hear Wallace Stevens mentioned, particularly vis-a-vis John Ashbery, for example. But um, you mentioned Gertrude Stein there a mm-hmm. moment. She's obviously an influence. What about William Carlos Williams? He, I mean, he seems to lie somewhere not too far behind a poem like this?
1: I mean, un, unavoidable. I mean, I think he's just some of the bones. I mean, I think him and and Stevens are just like American poetry. I mean, there it is. There's the two tendencies in the big way in the right. 20th century. But I think Apollinaire, absolutely. I think Pasternak, you know, I think Mayakovsky. So I think in a way, all of modernism is is something that they were kind of grabbing from and excited about. And then I think each one had their own perversities. I mean, when John Ashbery told us he was reading John Clare, we all started reading John Clare. And I think so there's lots of tiny discoveries, you know.
0: That was um, Eileen Miles reading White Boat, Blue Boat by James Schuyler. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down.
1: He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams.
1: Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories
0: or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Then, in the August 24th, uh, 2016 issue of The New Yorker. Eileen Miles, we were delighted to publish your poem, Dissolution, and, uh, which you're going to read for us now. Actually, why don't you read it for us first, and then we can talk about it if we may. Mm-hmm. Dissolution.
1: Great. Dissolution. Sometimes I forget what country I'm in. I could write poems in bed. I think have some Americans look at your awful movie to tell you when you're wrong and just racist. I get this bug bite that could be anything. Got no new information to send across. I'm willing to embrace new sort of cranny tone, scribbled version of empty so it's kind of full. A kid could draw this world it had been lived in so long. You forgot to call your family, and now you're ready to write an explicit Bible of love. The ripple of experience is the only beauty here. My coloring book, Why Not?, is so like a movie. And I just hand you this damp coloring book. I say, there, that's my model. Not the kind of laminate shit you can bring in the tub. I'm not making some picture book of bourgeois life. A damp coloring book is naturally orange. You left it outside. Now you want to save it? It's still good, and that's your secret. How did a mosquito get under these sheets, knocking against my calf? They stop when I stop thinking about them. The book that was my very private thing is gone.
0: Thank you so much. Dissolution. Now, the word dissolution, of course, goes in a couple of directions again, um, but that's what words do. Dissolution in the sense of uh, what what we used to refer to as, as, as I hesitate from saying this, but loose living, at least hanging out and, uh, right. you know, dissolution, drinking, whatever, smoking, what all of those things we used to do back mm-hmm. in the day. And uh, also, of course, just in its literal uh, sense, I suppose, of things um, dissolving, of things being uh, not being on picked, uh, problems being solved.
1: Well, what else? I mean, sure. I, th- I think the thinginess of the poem can be dissolute too. You know, I mean, I think people always expect poetry to be beautiful. You know, and I know since Baudelaire, that's been challenged. But, but. I think we, ch- we t- to keep writing poems, we challenge it again and again. And so I think I was thinking both from the condition of the self who was writing the poem and thinking this is a dissolute moment and therefore the poem would be dissolute and it would be kind of a destroyed object. And, and then to maybe relish that position, to be writing about something that's sort of wrecked and then to kind of pull each little piece of it out. And I think it's always... An active analysis among the many things that a poem is, you know, to look at all the parts of the thing that you're sitting in and to say what's beautiful, what's messed up, what's funny, what's what's great and link it to all the other things that have been perhaps – I was in an artist colony when I wrote this and so you're always um, exposed to lots of other people's work. So it wasn't that somebody had shown some lousy racist movie, but I think it had a, it began a conversation in my head that hadn't stopped. Cause I think that's part of the thing about being a poet too is you never say everything. I mean I think you were saying that about Skylar early. It's It's never a complete thought. It's a partial thought. So there's always lots of other pieces floating around ready to be applied or popped into some poem.
0: Well, it's a little bit like the vernacular that we were talking about earlier on. It's as if we're looking somehow at uh, um, an unmade bed, something that's overheard, something Mm -hmm. that's sighted through a window, rather than some beautiful ornament that's mm-hmm. been presented with you know hospital corners or whatever the term is it's or you know the bed that we meet when we come into a hotel room right it's the opposite of that
1: right well it's like when we have our picture taken you know like and we're living in such an age where it's happening all the time and they catch a weird one and then you think I can do better than that and then you kind of form your face into a better pose and and so there's a lot of that going on too like just as this whole mess is strewn Suddenly, one you know says the ripple of experience is the only beauty here. You know, like a need to make a speech is always part of this this kind of puddle.
0: You interestingly used a phrase um, of uh, Schuyler earlier on about his uh, were they snapshots or a point and snap point and snap, which was a term that used to be used in the olden days when <laughs> many of us had cameras, right. you pointed and snapped. And I really what I'm coming around to asking you about is if you feel that in a way this method uh, that was so beloved of and inextricably bound up with the New York school hasn't in a way actually become more part of the back back of our minds or the front of our minds indeed in a world where where there is so much that's impromptu and mm-hmm. unmade and where everything has been snapped
1: right right no i think exactly i think we're 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 living in that time i mean i think the kind of what was regarded as sort of a new york school way of framing things is kind of the virtual experience we're all having all the time if you look at twitter so many lines just sound like a little pronouncement from one of these guys' poems or the poems that they inspired, you know, in the, in the following generations. I mean, advertising sounds like a New York school poem. But, you know, but then the New York school poem was advertising. O'Hara himself once made a movie called The Last Clean Shirt. And, and it, he's watching a couple ride around in a T-bird through New York someplace in the 60s. And then he wrote the subtitles. And Suddenly you get this sense of this yippee, like what it was like to be in America after World War II when everybody thought everything was great and we won and people hadn't started getting assassinated yet. And there was just this – people still believe in progress. So that that fullness of of existence – was was all over their poems, you know, and um, you know it's different now. But we can still we can still hit the mark with a high excited line.
0: I'm fascinated by what you say here. I mean, it's as if there was a moment um, for those of us of a certain age, I suppose, sometime, sometime in the maybe mid 1960s. I don't mm-hmm. know where one would put it. When when there was a sense that actually things could get better, where there was some sense of hope, mm-hmm. we don't seem to have it anymore.
1: Not not as an overall surge that everybody feels like they're living in. That's not the shape of the times. I mean, I think that we're you know endlessly getting pieces of mail that tell us, well, what about the hummingbirds? You know, what about the bees? And what about this? You know, this canyon. I mean, there's so much, we're so aware of loss. So it's like, how does one? Tweet <laughs> in a way, you know, like how does one how does one kind of sustain a, a joyous feeling? And I think, I mean, I think you don't. I think you just you just take it when you see it. Yeah, let me ask, ask you. Um,
0: this is a rather large question. I, 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 but how would you say the poet, you yourself, and other poets who are functioning now in twenty sixteen as it happens, how are we to? Deal with making sense of the world at the moment. How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think you know the thing, The word you applied to Schuyler, "intimist," is is there for all of us. I mean, I think the hardest thing about the world we're living in right now is the question of whether I am inside of it. You know, you're always being torn out by your phone, by your messages, by your, your pace. I mean everybody knows that, that it was slower in other times, that 10 years ago it was slower and 10 years before that. When I think about what the 70s felt like. So I think that I have to find a thing that, that everybody needs to find and I think one of the ways I find it is through poems. One of the times that I can control and manage is the time within my poem. It's a very small space but I think part of what get people get when they read a poem is not necessarily a slow experience but uh, a considered one in a certain way. A person is trying to make sense of their inside and their outside. So this, the negotiation is going on you know. and it's not a Zen talk. It's a poem.
0: I suppose a poem by necessity is a slowing down of things though of course there is an argument for uh, <laughs> speeding up to be in sync with mm-hmm. the, the speed of the moment.
1: Well, I think we make I think we make jokes in our poems all the time. I w- for some reason, I was reading a long piece about the, you know, the iPhone seven, and I just thought about dropping that in a poem, you know, and things like that make you know that the you know the reader will know that the slow person they're reading is running is moving in their fast world, you know, like Schuyler's poems. The perspectives are multiple, and so are the speeds that we're all having to figure out how to live in a fast, slow time and each each different mix is signature and that's what we're offering.
0: One of the dangers of being up to the moment and mentioning the iPhone 7 is of course that probably in two years' time, I mean this is a bit of an overstatement, but it's conceivable that no one will know what an iPhone 7 is mm-hmm. uh, in much the same way as we don't know what an Underwood is. Are you ever concerned about that in, in your own poems about uh – Somehow being on off the moment is going to, in a strange way, date the poem down the road, or is that even an issue?
1: No, because I think that's the exciting. That's part of the exciting time codes. You know, I mean, like mentioning John Clare. I mean, the thing people love about John Clare is that he's his poems are the first ones with no trespassing signs. So if I talk about gentrification or iPhone sevens, it's it's like. Authenticating the poem in a way it's putting a timestamp stamp on it that doesn 't date it it just it kind of shows that it was new I
0: think that's right. I think that's we have to believe that on balance that you know if we know the context uh, uh, in which Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, for example, you know with uh, James very concerned about witches with plague in the air, and all the rest of it, it does actually help us to understand the text. Mm-hmm. Listen, it's been fascinating talking to you. <laughs> we, Likewise. Could, we could talk all day, but I think yeah. we have to come to an end. Thank you very much indeed, Eileen Miles, for being with us today. White Boat, Blue Boat by James Schuyler, as well as Eileen Miles, your own poem, Dissolution, may be found on newyorker.com. Eileen Miles' latest book of poems is I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems. And then James Schuyler's final collection, alas, was his selected poems. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play. The theme music is The
1: Pitnickree Ferryman, from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas, from Colburny Records.